We're going to hit the ground running. At least 50% of West St. Tammany residents do not have repeated opportunities to see, hear, and respond to the gospel. And what that means is that one out of two of your neighbors, co-workers, family, and friends here in St. Tammany don't know Jesus. That's how we started this new sermon series two weeks ago. And as we discussed it, we're coming to terms with the reality that this is our problem. Meaning, this is our problem to resolve. This is our task to take the good news to our neighbors. And last week, we began to chew on that responsibility. We asked the question of why should we care? Why should we care that our neighbors don't know Jesus? And we talked about why we should be concerned that they don't have repeated opportunities to come to know him. And the big reason, if you missed last week, it may surprise you. The big reason isn't primarily love for neighbor and concern for their eternal fate. No, our mission to the lost should be motivated first by reality, second by neighborly concern. Well, how does reality motivate Christian mission? There were three realities we looked at. The first reality is that there's only one God. There's one God who made everything and owns everything, and that reality means that every living creature should obey him. Everything that exists belongs for him and because of him, and so he deserves the obedience of every living creature because he is the one true God. But there's a second reality we looked at, that Yahweh God of the Bible, the God who made himself visible to us in the person of Christ, That God is the most beautiful, glorious, wonderful, just, good being who has ever existed. And so this God not only deserves obedience, he deserves worship. And in fact, if we were to know him, it would be the greatest delight of our hearts. And that leads to the third reality, that Jesus through his victory over sin and death, is now seated on the throne of the earth. Jesus is the king of everything and everybody. And so every person has been invited by Christ to give their lives to him, not in some ah, grievous, slavish, impersonal, servitude. No, Jesus said, come to me and my burden isn't heavy. It's, it's light. It's easy. Because when we submit to King Jesus, as we said earlier, we learn what it means to be human. To follow Christ is to be as we should be. It's a thing of joy. It's a thing of purpose. These are the realities that should urge us to take the good news to the world, to St. Tammany. There's one God, he's glorious, and Jesus is king. That mindset, that motive for Christian mission is very different from what I grew up with as a kid. And this isn't me uh, talking bad about other denominations. Uh, Presbyterians do the same thing. When we start Christian mission mostly out of concern for people are going to hell, which is true... We end up doing it differently. Here's what I'm trying to say. When your motive for something changes, it also changes the way that you do the thing. Let me give you an example. 
Some of you all know, if you've been around here a while, uh, some of you know that I've had liver problems since moving to southeast Louisiana. My liver doesn't process animal fats properly. So I have what's called non-alcoholic fatty liver syndrome. So I eat a special diet uh, wherein I eat vegan the majority of the time, plant-based. If you go out to a restaurant with me, I don't usually fret about it. I do still love cows and think they should all die and be consumed, just not necessarily by me. But when I'm at home, I pretty much eat plants all the time. Now, when I made that switch to a plant-based diet some years ago, my liver enzymes started correcting themselves, and my liver is very healthy now. But then another problem popped up. My blood sugar started going up. So I I went and saw my doctor again. He said, well, how's your your intake of bread and rice? And I said, well, doc, you took away meat. (laughs) My, my, My rice, my bread intake is actually higher than it was before. And he responded, well, we got to change that. The motive is now changing. We got your liver enzymes down. Now we got to get your your blood sugar down. So we cut down on the carbs. So that's resolved now. Now he's saying I need to lose weight. So I think the the diet now is going to be like ice chips and flaxseed. I'm not entirely sure. But when the motive behind something changes, the activity usually changes as well. So last week we saw the primary motive behind Christian mission. Our mission to the law should be primarily motivated by reality, secondarily by neighborly concern. And today I want to unpack how this motive changes our method. But before we get to that, I want to describe a little more clearly what I keep meaning when I say Christian mission. You've heard me say this several times thus far. So last week I mentioned a book by John Dixon called The Best-Kept Secret of Christian Mission. You're probably going to hear about it every week. His whole book is expressing this idea that we've understood not only the motive for Christian mission, we've also misunderstood what Christian mission should look like. And he put it this way. He said, somehow I came to assume that the only important means of promoting Christ to my neighbors was talking about him. Reaching out to others became for me an entirely verbal activity. But perhaps the best-kept secret of Christian mission is that the Bible lists a whole range of activities that promote Christ to the world and draw others toward him. These include prayer, godly behavior, financial assistance, the public praise of God in church, and answering answering people's questions about the faith. All of these are explicitly connected in the Bible with advancing the gospel and winning people to Christ. They are all mission activities, and only a couple of them involve the lips at all. Christian mission does not equal evangelism. So this is not a sermon series about evangelism. It's a sermon series about every one of us finding our part in the redemption of St. Tammany Parish and then playing our part. And not every Christian is called to the same role. Every Christian has a different part to play. Finally, you've got a blank to fill in. Every Christian has a different part to play in the redemption of their hometown. And that means two different things. First, you have a part in this work. Helping the the, the residents of St. Tammany to know Jesus isn't the job of a certain class of Christian. 
This isn't something that you have to get to a certain maturity level to, to find a role. No, every one of us has got skin in the game. From the youngest to the oldest, from the least mature to the most mature, God is inviting all of us at FPC to own the lostness of our community. But that means, secondly, that each of us does have a different part to play, a different role in the redemption of West St. Tammany. So your part is different from my part, is different from Amy's part, is different from Joe's part. We've all got a different role to play. And until the church, as a body... And as individuals, until we all are playing our part in the redemption of St. Tammany Parish, it's going to be very difficult to move forward. Now, when you think about your role, and this is really what we're trying to do with this series, is for you to walk away and say, okay, I know what God has gifted and called me to do in regards to my neighbors who don't know Jesus. That's what we're trying to figure out. That's your job over the next six weeks or however long this takes. And there's two parts of each of our role, okay? Here's the first part of your role. The part that you play in Christian mission begins with a broad array of activities that can be summed up as holy living or radical love for God and neighbor. For simplicity, we will be calling this promoting the gospel. So when you hear me talking about promoting the gospel, I'm talking about your way of life, How your way of life either promotes Jesus or doesn't promote Jesus. It promotes something else. If you profess faith publicly as Jesus is Lord with your mouth, if you profess to be a Christian, then your life becomes a billboard for Jesus. And quite frankly, what you say about Jesus will not be believable if your life doesn't reflect an encounter with the one true God. The most high God. This was Jesus' number one criticism of the religious leaders of his day. They were religiously scrupulous. But they didn't demonstrate meaningful love for God. Or love for neighbor. They were jerks. If you have met the one God who exists. We're talking about reality here. If you've met the God who is glorious and good and holy. If you've truly met him. Your life will be changed by that encounter. You will be shaped increasingly into the image of God so that your life is radically different from what it used to be. And your life is radically different from your neighbors who don't know Jesus. Your life, your way of life, is the number one advertisement for the gospel that you actually believe. So that's the first part of your role in reaching St. Tammany Parish is how you promote the gospel with your way of life. That's the first part. But the other part is your words, your speaking, your proclaiming. The part that you play in Christian mission will also consist of directly talking about the faith with certain people. For simplicity, we'll be calling this proclaiming the gospel. So that's the second phrase you're going to hear about a lot. You hear me talking about promoting the gospel with your life, but then proclaiming the gospel with your lips. The question is, How are you going to be called to proclaim the gospel with your lips? And to whom are you going to be called to proclaim the gospel to your lips? Not every person in this room is responsible to talk to every person in West St. Tammany Parish about matters of faith. In fact, we each have very specific people whom God wants us to share our faith with. For some of you, this will be a big group of people. 
It will be a wide swath of unbelieving people in St. Tammany Parish. But for some of you, in fact, for most of you, it'll probably only be a handful of people that God has called you to speak the gospel to. Now, we won't know until we get further in this conversation. We're actually going to really chew on this question next week. But this much is true. The people that God has called you to proclaim the gospel to, the people God wants you to talk about Jesus to them, I can promise you this. They're going to be the people that see your life every day. The people that see your promotion of the gospel the most, they're the ones you're going to have the greatest responsibility to speak the gospel to them. There's going to be more responsibility there the closer you get to somebody. So we've each got a part to play in the redemption of St. Tammany Parish. And that part is made up of promoting the gospel with our life, proclaiming the gospel with our lips. And the remainder of this sermon series is going to fill in the blanks on those two aspects of your role. But before we get into those very practical weeds, I want to pick up where we left off last week in Psalm 96 and see how our motive for Christian mission changes the way that we do Christian mission. Just as my diet has changed due to my motives, so our mission changes as our motive shifts. So our mission should not only be motivated by reality, but also shaped by it. So if Christian mission, if the way we promote and proclaim the gospel, if it's motivated primarily by love for neighbor, by concern for their eternal state, it ends up looking and sounding a certain way. However, when our mission is motivated by biblical monotheism, the the glory of God and the kingship of Jesus, it just starts to sound different. As I said last week, Christian mission, when it's motivated by reality, it sounds more like a news flash than a sales pitch, right? It sounds uh, more like worship than hesitant stuttering. It's a bold declaration of something that's real and true, whether or not people receive it or believe it. But how do I, talking about me, how do I usually think about the prospects of talking to somebody else, for example, about Jesus? I get anxious about it. I start to think, well, their, their eternal fate hangs in the balance in this moment, so I've got to make sure I cross every T and dot every I and, and say everything just as convincingly and compellingly as possible so that I can sleep at night knowing that they've gotten enough that they can be saved. Well, that's when we start with neighborly concern, and I don't see that kind of hand-wringing anxiety. Maybe that's just me. I don't know if y'all feel, maybe y'all are very confident as you talk to people about Jesus, but... I don't see that kind of hand-wringing anxiety in Psalm 96. When we're playing our part in the redemption of St. Tammany Parish, when each of us reaches out to the lostness of our hometown, what does it look like? The psalmist shows us in verses 7 through 10. If you weren't here last week, the beginning of the psalm, the psalmist gives us a command. He says to Israel, to God's people, go. Proclaim the good news. He goes at length telling us what to do. But in verses 7 through 10... He shows us how. He gives us a model for Christian mission. So look again in verse 7, chapter 96. Ascribe to Yahweh, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to Yahweh glory and strength. So remember in verses 2 through 6, he wasn't talking to the families of the peoples as he is here. He was talking to Israel. So he has turned from Israel, he's turned from God's people, and now he's looking to the nations. He's looking to the pagans. He's looking to the Gentiles, right? And what does he tell them? He says, unbelievers, 
ascribe to Yahweh glory and strength. That is in direct response to what he said back in verse 5. Look back at verse 5. He says in verse 5, All the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but Yahweh has made the heavens. That's reality. The gods that the world serves are worthless idols or trash. There's one God, the one who made everything. Therefore, he tells the nations of the world, your gods are no good. Ascribe to Yahweh glory and strength. There is one God, he is strong, and he is glorious. It's a reality check. You know, this is like evangelism in the tradition of Elijah and John the Baptist to tell somebody, you know, the things you trust in really are just garbage. There's only one God. (laughs) He made everything. You should worship him. It's a very different approach to talking to somebody about matters of faith. Look at verses 8 and 9 as he goes on. Ascribe to Yahweh the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship Yahweh in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. What a strange invitation. He tells the unbelieving world to worship God. Why? Because he made the world. Why? Because he's glorious. Worship him in the splendor of his holiness and submit to his kingship. He's just telling them reality. And he's inviting them to step into reality. Let me ask you a question. This might be hard for you. You may have to think for a second. That's okay. How is this approach to talking to an unbeliever about matters of faith different from how you usually conceptualize it. You can raise your hand if it makes you feel better. How is this different from maybe how you've been trained to talk to people about Jesus? Christopher? Yeah, that's kind of the starting point a lot of the time. First, I've got to convince you that you're a sinner. I've got to convince you of the problem that you've got. And the problem comes when people are just happy with the life they've got, you know? And their gods are working out okay for them. Yes, it's very different. Just saying, no, this is what's true. Inviting them into it. John? That's right. Yeah, one, one approach, if you can hear, one, he said one approach, the one we were talking about before, is kind of focused on the person all on them. This is focused on God. It's focused on the big, the bigger picture. One more observation. All right. I won't force you guys to talk anymore today. We'll wait. We'll wait for next week. John just pointed out my next point. This approach. Oh, I missed something. No, I skipped pages. That's okay. Um, let's see. Here, so here's my description of this reality-motivated model of mission. A reality-motivated mo- model for mission looks like this. Inviting other people to reject every false god. Inviting other people to worship Yahweh God and to enjoy his glory. And then inviting them to live out this new reality in submission to King Jesus. It's a totally different model from the one that I've ordinarily used when I talk to unbelievers. And I'm still chewing on how to, how to make it, how to, how to do it, you know? Um, but I think John is right. So that, I was supposed to say that a page ago. I just got too excited. This approach 
has less to do with the individual and their needs and more to do with who God is and what he has done. It's a really bold invitation to know God, worship the one God, serve the one God, but don't miss this. Implicit in all these invitations is the necessity of a propitiatory sacrifice. Most of the time when we think about about sharing the gospel with somebody, when we think about the needs of our community, we think they need the cross. That's not absent from this psalm. It's just not all of it. The cross is a part of a bigger story. And what is that story? Look again at verses 7 and 8. Ascribe to Yahweh, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to Yahweh glory and strength. Worship him. Verse 8. Ascribe to Yahweh the glory due his name. Bring an offering. And come into his courts. Before you can worship God. Before you can be in his presence. Before you can serve him. Something has to happen. Namely, something has to happen with your sins. This verse decisively says, you cannot come as you are. Your sins have to be paid for. There must be a sacrifice. When we evangelicals think about the gospel, talk about the gospel, our tendency is to begin with the sinner, to tell them about Jesus' death on the cross for them and how individuals can be saved. That's not necessarily wrong. I came to Christ through a presentation of the gospel that was just like that. What I'm saying is it's not the whole story. The whole story begins with there is one God. He is glorious and he is king. And in fact, Jesus is king. These big, huge, reality-orienting ideas. And if we want to be a part of that, we want to know that God, worship that God, follow Jesus, something's going to have to be done about our sins. There is a need for forgiveness and propitiation. And we see it right here in the middle of Psalm 96. So what if our approach... The Christian mission didn't begin with our neighbor's needs. What if our approach to Christian mission wasn't about convincing our neighbors of anything off the bat? What if our approach just began with reality? As we said last week, our mission to the law should be motivated first by reality, second by neighborly concern. We're going to talk about that neighborly concern some next week. But if each of us played our part in the redemption of St. Tammany in this way, it would change the way we do it. How? If we approached owning the lostness of our community through this perspective, how would it impact you? Well, here's my three practical takeaways as we close. First, it's easier to tell somebody objective truth than to persuade them of a personal need. Some people don't see their need of a savior. Some of them are quite happy with their lostness and the life it provides them. And some of us think That talking with others begins with convincing them of how bad their future is, of how desperately lost they are. That doesn't have to be the starting point. That doesn't even seem to be the biblical norm. Instead, we start with some objective truth. We tell them about God, his glory, his saving work. Here's a second benefit of this approach to Christian mission. This perspective removes the guilt-driven, fear-surrounded expectation about proclaiming and promoting the gospel. If you take the old approach or if you take this new approach, there's less fear about, did I say enough? Did I say the right thing? Did I use the right apologetics to convince my neighbor? When all I'm doing is telling the truth about reality, it takes a lot of that anxiety out of it. 
When I tell somebody about the great dinner that I had with my wife recently, I'm not worried about whether I'm getting all the details just right so that they'll go to the restaurant too. I'm just speaking the truth out of my experience in a way that I find joyful. You see the difference? Here's a final benefit that I see in this perspective. This perspective asks the real question, do we take what we believe seriously enough that it actually changes our lives? If we believe these things are real, there's one God He's the most satisfying being, the most satisfying thing in all reality, and that he's the king of our lives. If we take that reality seriously, you'd think that would make proclaiming and promoting the gospel very easy. It would come naturally to us if this was the reality in which we lived. And listen, I know you guys, most of you all very, very well. And I know that most, if not all of you, do believe that there's only one God. And it's Yahweh God. Most of you believe that Jesus is king of all things. I do wonder about that second thing. If you are really convinced in living out and experiencing that Yahweh God is the most glorious, beautiful, wonderful being and thing in all existence. If he is your highest delight. And we all struggle with that. That's a a point of repentance for all of us, no doubt. But if these things are reality, should it not change the way we live? the way we talk, the way we interact with the people of St. Tammany Parish. Of course, by now you're probably wondering, so what are you asking me to do, preacher? (laughs) What does God want me to do about the lostness of my neighbors? What does it look like in action to promote and proclaim the gospel in West St. Tammany? Well, we're going to get to it next week. But this week, meditate on this reality, chew on it, that our mission to the lost should not only be motivated by reality, but shaped by reality, primarily secondarily by neighborly concern. And if we consider the lostness of our family, our friends, our co-workers, our neighbors from that perspective, how would that change our feelings? How would that change our approach? How would that change our words? How would that change our actions?